0: picking up in our series in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 16 this morning, looking at uh, the entire chapter of Exodus 16. And you will find that, I'll give you a page number, Uh, on page 58 if you happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles. If you have your own Bible, you're on your own. If you're just joining us as we've been uh, going through the book of Exodus in this series, we've been talking about Exodus as a book about God setting his people free. This is a book of freedom, and every step along the way as we go through Exodus, we're seeing our God setting his people free, and that has implications for us, that we are a people uh, meant to be free, freed by our God. So let's take a look this morning at Exodus uh, 16. Uh, Please pray with me, and then we'll read. Father, we uh, ask this morning that you would uh, open our hearts to hear your word. Open your word to us that we might be changed. That we might see again or anew or afresh how good you are and how much we need you and how quick you are to step in, to reach into us in our need. We pray that you would be glorified this morning and you would continue your good work of changing us, of setting us free, of helping us to live in the freedom you have won for us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Exodus 16, beginning with verse 1. The Israelites set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it's against the Lord. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each of as much as they could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. And place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the man of forty years till they came to a habitable land, and they ate the man until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. I hope that clarifies that for you. <laughs> <clears throat> There's a lot going on in this passage. But what we're going to talk about this morning is, is God's provision. How he uses his provision to teach us how to, how to trust him. So here's what we're going to see this morning. That we are hungry people who are dependent on God to graciously meet our needs. We're dependent people, dependent on God to graciously meet our needs. So that said, let me ask you this question. This week, has it been apparent to you that God is graciously meeting your needs? Has it felt like that this week? When you look at your marriage, when you look at your family, when you look at your relationships with your friends, with your coworkers, in your neighborhood, does it feel like God has been graciously meeting your needs? Now, for some of you, you can honestly say yes and amen to that. But many of us this week, many of us in the weeks to come, are going to find ourselves in places where it's hard to trust. And it's hard to imagine that God could somehow possibly be working to graciously meet us in our need. So we're going to take that question and that tension and take it where we should always take it, right to God's word, see what he has to say to us about his care and his graciousness towards us. So we're going to see here, um, we're going to see our need and we're going to see God's provision. And then we're going to see our greater need and God's greater provision. So needs and provisions. First, our need. The Israelites, they were hungry, okay, verses 1 through 3. They've been in the desert for something like a month or more now, and they're out of food. And on either end of chapter 16, at the very end of 15 and the very start of 17, there are two incidents that bracket this when the, when the people of Israel have no water, and they cry out to God to give them water. So you've got these three incidents back to back, water, bread, and water. They are people who need the very basic sustenance uh, of life. They're hungry, and they're thirsty. You know what it's like to feel hungry and thirsty. You know what we say when we are. My four year old daughter the other day turned to me and said, Daddy, I'm starving. And I thought, You're not starving. Where did you ever learn something like that? I'm sure she heard it from me. The Israelites, though, really are in danger of starving. Okay, it's been weeks since they've left. If you remember, as they come out uh, on the night of Passover, that they don't even have time to put leaven and they don't even have time to put yeast in their bread. Like they, they take it in the trough with them. Like they are, they're, they're, sent out of Egypt in the middle of the night. No time to pack, no provisions. And so weeks into this, they're very hungry and they're very thirsty. You know what it's like um, when you feel like you, you have what maybe are real needs that aren't being met and how we can just do foolish things when we're in that kind of point of need. We can do foolish things when we get hungry. My wife and I, Elizabeth, we lived... In Philadelphia for a number of years before we moved down to Williamsburg, and uh, she, would, she worked in the, in the center of the city, and she, she would normally take the train into work, but sometimes she had to be at work so early that it was before the trains ran, so, so I got to drive her into work. And the, the one consolation in this, I mean, other than time together in the car at 5 a.m., um, the one other consolation to this is we would park the car catty-corner to where she worked, which just happened to be right next to the Dunkin' Donuts. And uh, in Philadelphia, there's Dunkin' Donuts on every street corner. Uh, But so I'd say goodbye to Elizabeth, she'd walk across the street, and I'd go into Dunkin' Donuts starving, and I would get two chocolate donuts and a thing of orange juice. And for about three blocks as I drove away, it tasted so good. And about four, five, six blocks after that, and by the time I got home, I just felt terrible. (laughs) You know know what it's like? You eat, you sort of gorge on this uh, sugar rush, and then it all leaves your body, and you feel disgusting. And I wish I could say I only did this once. I did this time after time. <laughs> because when we're hungry when we're in need, we can do what are often foolish, foolish things. Um, have you ever felt that way when you're caught in the middle of needing something and it's not showing up? When you think to yourself, if I don't get this now, I'm going to die. Well, that's what the Israelites thought. And it was close to being true. Okay, They were hungry. Now, the second thing about their need these Israel, little Israelites were sick. They were sick at heart. Because look what happens when they look around and don't see the provision they th- so desperately think they need. What, what happens? They begin to grumble. Okay, We see this first. They grumble again in those first three verses against Moses and Aaron. Listen to what they say. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pot. I guess that was good. And Ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, they're looking at Moses and Aaron. Okay, you guys who, uh, by the power of God, you know, brought these ten plagues, who walked before us uh, through the Red Sea, is it divides? Um, that was all a ploy to get us into the desert so you could starve us to death. Irrational, but that's what they're doing. They're hungry, they don't see any possible provision for their need, and they begin to grumble. Now, Moses calls them on this because eventually he says, You are grumbling, but let me tell you, you're not grumbling against me. You are grumbling against God. He says this to him in verse eight. Your grumbling is against God. And and they knew some hint of this. If you look back at their original complaint in verse two, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. As if this God who has redeemed him, has redeemed them, was about the business of killing them, as if He brought them into freedom simply to snuff them out in the desert. Already, what are they doing? They're grumbling against God. Now let me, let me point out an important distinction. Uh, their grumbling is grumbling springs from a lack of trust. And it is a shaking your fist, as we see here, ultimately a God, whoever else happens to be in the middle as well. But it's a shaking your fist born out of a lack of trust that says, You have failed me, you are failing me, and I will not get what I need. Okay, there is a place in Scripture, not for grumbling, but for lament. If you're familiar with the Psalms, they are full of Psalms of lament, of people crying out in the middle of their very real suffering, in the middle of their very real disappointment, saying, God, where are you? I'm surrounded by enemies. My life is about to be snuffed out. Where are you? Show up. Some of them are bolder than that in their prayers. There's a difference between grumbling and lament. As we said, grumbling is born out of a lack of trust. Lament is born out of a true trust. Because the psalmist, what are they doing? They're crying out to their God. They're looking at their life. They're in desperate need of provision. And so they, in faith, turn to the only one who can meet them in that need, in lament. And lament has an honored place in Scripture. And it has a place in our lives. But what we see here is grumbling. And so what do they do next? Uh, They grumble and then they, they disobey God's direct instructions. Because first we see them in their lack, reacting unfaithfully. They grumble. But then what happens when God provides the very thing they need? They continue to distrust him. They continue to shake their fist at him because what happens? God comes and he says, I'm going to rain down this bread from heaven for you tomorrow. And here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to go out and gather a container full for yourself. Just enough for today. And then you get rid of at night of whatever's left over. And I'll provide for you again the next morning. So the people go out. They see this. They gather it. And it says some of the people... Keep some of what they gathered that day for the next day. And it says that it, it, they, they wake up in the morning and it stinks and it's full of worms. Moses is angry. Why? Because what have they said, okay, God, you showed up today and met my needs. I'll take you at your word, but I don't, I don't believe you're going to show up tomorrow, even though you've said you would. And then the next to last day of the week, what do they do? God says, go out today, this one day of the week. You're going to go out and gather twice as much. And you're going to save it for the next day because tomorrow there will be no manna. Tomorrow is a Sabbath, a day of rest. And so you are going to get enough today to cover you for two days. They wake up the next morning. And what happens? Some of the people go out to gather more manna as they have every day. And God is frustrated because he says to them, you know, are you, ever going to, are you ever going to listen to me? Are you ever going to keep my word? They were sick. They were heart. Sick, And it gave birth to grumbling and it gave birth to disobedience. Uh, They had a sickness that was heart level and it was the sickness of sin, a sickness we share as well. Uh, There's an illustration in in a book on marriage that I'd recommend to you. It's called When Sinners Say I Do. It's by a guy named Dave Harvey. And he uses this example of, of, of sin. He talks about going out to a shed one day to go get his lawnmower to mow the grass. And usually his teenage son, and I, I dream of having a teenage son do this, usually his teenage son goes out and, and, and mows the lawn, but for whatever reason, he was doing it today. So he, he fires up the lawnmower, and he's out mowing his grass, and all of a sudden this, this oil, this hot oil, just starts erupting out of the engine. He gets it all over himself. And then he shuts it off, and he looks down, and his son, I guess, had forgotten to put the cap back on the, oil, the little oil thing on his, on his lawnmower. And and here's what he says. He said, where did the oil come from? Well, I mean, it came from inside the engine. And it came out when the engine got hot. And said, this is sort of the way our lives work. Okay, The stuff that comes spewing out the oil that comes out and gets all over us and all over the people we're in the middle of conflict with, it gets all over everyone around us. He said, where does it come from? It comes from our heart. And it wasn't the heat that created the oil. The oil was already in the engine. The heat was just the opportunity for it to come out. And the Israelites are experiencing heat. They're hungry and they're thirsty. They're feeling desperate. But what does that heat bring out? This grumbling, this distrust, this disobeying of God's word. So here's the question. Where did that come from? The situation didn't create it. How many times have we maybe been in a situation like this, when you're, when you have to finally come and admit to somebody that you've uh, done them wrong, you've said something wrong? Have you ever said anything like this? I'm sorry for doing blank, but you just made me so mad. <laughs> Let me tell you about that. Okay, did they make you? Did they make you mad? Did they make you mad? Is that the only way? Someone could hypothetically have responded to whatever was said, whatever was done. Did they make you mad? Did they cause your outburst, your hard words, your grumbling? No. What did they do? They turned up the heat a little bit, and they provided an opportunity for the contents of our heart to come spilling out all over everyone. You know, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 12:34: Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It was already there. So my question for us is, where are you grumbling in your life? Over what are you grumbling? To whom are you grumbling? Where are you not trusting God's care for you? Where are you not seeing it? Israelites respond out of the sickness of heart. There's another way they could have responded. And it goes something like this. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he's right here in the middle of the prayer. Lord, give us today our daily bread. Lord, we are hungry. We're people in need. But we're turning to you. Please give it to us. Give us what we need for today. Jesus invites us to pray this prayer. Meet us in our need. So how does God meet them in their need? Let's look at his provision. That's our need. Second thing, God's provision. How did they end up in the wilderness? God took them there. Okay, This was God's plan for them. They're not in the wilderness because they've sinned somehow, because they've done something wrong. They're in the wilderness as part of God's work of bringing them out of slavery and then ultimately to the promised land, the land of Canaan. That's where they have their eyes set. But in the middle is the wilderness, and they're smack dab in the middle of it because God has brought them there. They're on the way, but God, cho- the path God chooses runs right through the wilderness as often it do- as it does For us, God is the one who takes them to this place of need. But then in the middle of their very real need, he begins to provide for their needs. And this amazes me about this passage, because how do you respond when people come grumbling to you? How you How do I respond? But what does God do in the face of their grumbling? He moves towards them, and he provides for them those needs. First, he provides in his grace. Look at verse 12. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I've heard their grumbling. This has not happened behind my back. I know exactly what is going on. And I'm going to meet them in spite of it. He comes to them in his grace. Second thing, he comes to them in his own time. Okay, Because notice... Uh, There are a lot of ways he could have met their need for food. He could have told them to pack more before they left. Uh, He could have put vendors all the way across the wilderness, you know, hot dog. I mean, I don't know. what He could have done a lot of things. But what does he do? He takes them to the point where they are at their desperate last step. He meets them in their need in his own time. At What they feel is the very end of their rope. He waits until they're really hungry. meets them in his own time. He meets them in his own way. There are a lot of things um, that a lot of ways Israelites might have been able to imagine that God would have met their need for food if they'd believed God would. There are a lot of ways they could have imagined, but they never could have imagined this. They never would have pictured manna, these white little honey-tasting seed things that show up in the morning. Because when they walk out of their tents that morning, they don't say, oh, here's manna, we've heard about this. What do they do? They look down and they say, "What, what is this? And Moses has to tell them. God comes and meets them in their need, but in his own way, in a way that they never could have imagined. They had no way to guess how God might provide for them, but their lack of imagination did not put a limit on God's ability to provide for them in the middle of their need. He does this for them for their good. He waits and meets them in his own time and in his own way and in his grace for the good of his people because he wants them to ask this very central question. Do I trust God? Do I trust him? This God who is, in the words of Exodus, brought us out of slavery who's brought us through the Red Sea, who is bringing us to the promised land, do I trust him for us? This God who has sent his son to die on my behalf, this Jesus who is raised from the dead into glory, who sits at the Father's right hand, who intercedes for me even right now, do I trust this God? Their situation makes them ask this question. Then interestingly, uh, as we've seen this several times in Exodus, God wants them to remember. So he tells them to take steps to make sure they do. He says, take a container, put manna in it, and then I want you to keep that for the generations to come. Because they're going to spend 40 years in the desert, but one day they're coming to the Promised Land. And when they take their first step into the promised land. I should have looked this up. If I remember correctly, it's the first chapter of Joshua. When they take their first step into the promised land, the manna stops. It's done because they have now arrived at the land where God is going to continue to provide for them but provide in a different way. But he wants them to remember his provision in the desert. Why? Because the generations after them living in the promised land, Are going to find that it is hard to remember that God is the one who provides for you when you're in the midst of abundance. Because the children of this generation living in the Promised Land, they didn't have to get up every morning and depend on God to provide bread for them in their front yard. They looked out and they saw their fields, they saw their flocks. How easy is it to forget that those two are God's provision for us? And He wants them to remember that God is the one who supplies our needs. Every day, even when it seems so automatic, like a trip to the grocery store. It is God who provides for our needs every day, and he wants them to remember it. Okay, we could uh, we, we could stop there, but if we did, we'd, we'd leave out something pretty significant. Because here we see God's people in need, and we see God's provision. But in Scripture, the story does something more than just this. It points us to the fact That all of our needs, all of our hungers, actually point us to something deeper. And they point us towards something greater than just our next meal. Because we have hardwired into us, as people who are made in the image of God, a core need to be in relationship to God. We were made to be in relationship with him. Intimate, close relationship. That's what we were designed for. And that's what God's provision points to. Back to verse 12. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I am your God. I am here. I am the one taking care of you. I am here. I am the Lord your God. You You were made not only to need my gifts, but to need me, the giver of those gifts. You were made for me. Jesus picks up on this in John chapter 6. I'll read it, but if you'd like to turn there, it's on page 891 of your few Bible. This is John chapter 6. Feel free just to listen, starting in verse 26. This is the day after Jesus has fed the, the, the 5,000 and all that were with him, Okay, miraculously providing food, surprisingly in the wilderness again, for his people. The next day they come and they want to crown him king, but he has this confrontation with them. He says this, So they said to him, "'Then what sign do you do?' this is where it ties in Exodus. "'What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven.'" And they said to him, excuse me, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And what's Jesus doing? He's taking their very real need for food that they've just experienced the day before as he's fed 5,000 of them. And he points back to the same thing that he did for the Israelites out in the desert. He says, I know you are hungry people, but the truth is you are hungrier than you know because you need something that goes beyond just this bread that sustains you for a day. You need a relationship that's going to sustain you for eternity. You were made for me. Jesus says, I am that bread. I am the bread of life. Come to me. What do we see in Jesus God not simply providing in the wilderness but stepping into the wilderness that he might draw us close because this is a relationship that we were made for. And we cannot be whole and we cannot be complete without a right and restored relationship with our God. Uh, Maybe some of you remember the movie Jurassic Park, (laughs) typical crazy scientist deal where they – and they take the DNA of dinosaurs and they, and they recreate dinosaurs. They have a theme park so people can come see, you know, the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the raptors. And anyway, the, everything goes hay- haywire. And the scientists are, are just uh, baffled because one of the things they say is they said, you know, we genetically altered these dinosaurs so that their bodies were not able to make the protein lysine. I have no idea what that does. But the dinosaurs didn't have it. And they said, so we have to actually put lysine in their food that we leave out for them. And if we don't, they'll die. Okay, They created them with this genetic hole that had to be filled from outside of them. Otherwise, they would die. And here's the thing. They did this so that they could control these dinosaurs, so that they could maintain their place as the ones who control. But what happens when God creates us with a need for him? a built-in, hardwired need for him. It's not so that he control, can control us, but it is so that he can bless us. Because of all the creatures in God's creation, we are the one that he looks at and says, these are in my image, and they are meant to know me. And he's given us the capacity to know him, and that is why we fall apart without him. So God comes to them in the desert and he shows them their need And he meets them in their need. And he comes to us in Jesus. And he shows us our need. And he meets us in our need. His graciousness extended to us. Where are we not trusting this week? Where are we forgetting the goodness of God? Where are we turning in our hard circumstances to grumbling rather than lament? He takes them into the desert to show them that they are needy people. He takes them into the desert to show them that he is their all-sufficient, gracious God. He says, I will take care of you. And he says to us, I will take care of you. Watch, wait, see. It may not look like you expect. It may not come in the time that you expect. It may take a shape that you never would have imagined. But in Jesus, we have the promise made more sure that our God is favorably disposed to us, that that relationship is restored, and that we are brought back into his presence. And one day, we're going to see that in all its glorious, fulfilled beauty. Let's pray. Father, we do cry out to you, many of us. Would you meet us in our places of hunger and thirst and need? We're a people not just in need of provision, we're in need of you, the provider. Encourage us. Remind us of your all sufficiency. Help us and cry out to you. Would you free us from our grumbling, and free us from our disobedience, and free us from the sickness of our hearts? That we might instead cry out faithfully to you and honor you patiently wait on you, our good Lord and God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.